Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey there, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Priya Rao. She's the Glossy Executive Editor and the host of the Glossy Beauty podcast. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Dr. Michelle Koo. She's the founder and CEO at Dr. Koo Private Practice Skincare. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited to be here with Priya Rao. She is the executive editor of Glossy and the host of the Glossy Beauty podcast. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Hi, Jody. How are you? Priya, it's so cool that you're here, but I have to tell everyone you said that you're nervous, but this is kind of funny because you're the host of a podcast. <laughs> I am nervous. I am nervous. I have to say, you know, it's so much, uh, it's so different being interviewed than being the one interviewing. And I've gotten much better uh, at the second. So interviewing other people. So I'm in the hot seat today. So now you know really what it feels like for your guests. I know. And I was bugging Jody for everyone wants full disclosure. I was bugging Jody in advance for topics and questions before which is something I get so annoyed by, by my guests and their PRs. So uh, it's all coming full circle. Right. So um, why do you think having the questions ahead of time like is important to you, but also your guests? Well, I think for me, you know, I want to say the right thing and I want to be thoughtful with my answers and, and, you know, be able to provide information that I mean isn't just on the fly, even though those conversations are great too. But um, I totally get it for my guests now, you know, being able, they, if they're talking about, you know, a digital strategy or their brand or, you know, some new launch, they don't want to just, you know, be surprised, which I think is the biggest fear in podcasts, but also makes for great audio. <laughs> right. So um, those people might have like bosses who need to like see their responses before they're allowed to right. say them out loud, right? Totally. Like I did one yesterday that will be airing pretty soon, either this week or next week. And um, the PR was on the whole time taking notes. And that's not usually typical. The PR usually goes dark. Uh, but they were taking notes very furiously and rapidly, I guess, to kind of get those talking points squared away. Right. So, um, you know, I'm going to go totally out of order um, on my question. <laughs> so uh, sorry to com complicate it. And we will talk about your career journey because I think it's so interesting for everyone to hear. But, um, you know, I'm so fascinated by um, you and the position that you have because you're you're working, you're leading content for this influential industry publication, and um, which puts you sort of in the center of a lot of storytelling, and you're meeting people all the time, right? Um, so, and you're lovely. So I'm just curious about like, how do you build relationships when you're like wanted because of your, the, I, I don't know, access or exposure, whatever we wanna call it. Like, um, I'm just so curious how you navigate um, relationship building, because this is a fun industry, but like, how do you know if relationships are real in your position? Totally. Well, it's so nice to hear you say that I'm wanted because I definitely never kind of feel that way. And I guess that's kind of part of it is just like having a little bit of an outsider point of view. Um, I remember when I first started at Glossy, which was a little bit over two years ago, you know, Glossy hadn't done so much beauty as they had done fashion or luxury or technology. And so it was really building a lot of this from scratch. And I remember one of my first meetings was with the Shiseido team. And, you know, they were so interested, they were so open, they were willing to talk. And it ended up becoming a really 
great relationship and great story that we kind of told at the very beginning of that. But it was like, they were just as open to me as I was open to them. And now, you know, it's very odd because I know in beauty, it's so much fun and there's so many events and there's so much like party party in part of it. But at the same time, I think during COVID, it's like really kind of allowed people to pull back and be like, who is responsive, who's respectful, who's easy to get along with. And, you know, that matters more, I think, now more than ever, because you're pulling back all the veils of like pomp and circumstance or products or like a free facial or, you know, which is not something I necessarily really enjoyed so much because I get really nervous at events and get really nervous, like talking to people, like and doing like, you know, dinner party chat which I think people would be surprised by. I'm much better with people I know and they know me well. So relationship building is really important to me. And so I think the people who know me in beauty probably know that I'm much more vulnerable like than a lot of editors from the get. So it just takes a while to really trust people. So you're saying that because we don't have like the pomp and circumstance and party that we used to right now, that you can see the difference between publicists or brands who, um, I guess, work harder to relationship build than the ones who just relied on those um, in real life tactics. Yeah, and I also think that right now, you know, I know beauty and innovation and launches are so important to the industry and like newness drives the industry, but at the same time, you know, it's may not be appropriate to be doing some of these launches or some of these influencer campaigns right now in this environment. And so maybe you don't get to talk about, you know, your greatest vitamin C launch or greatest sunscreen launch right now in summer, which is what we'd probably be talking about. But, you know, you're kind of developing ideas together and you're kind of seeing like, oh, what are you working on? What are you seeing? What do you, it's a little bit more casual, I find. And do you think that your, your podcast guests and the people that you are interviewing for reporting, are they being more vulnerable? Yes and no. I mean, I think that there's a clear difference between people who do want to share. And I think at the start of this, when everybody was like, you know, the world is like totally crashed. And, you know, I, I had a, I had an interview with um, Bob Radigan at MERS the other day. And he said, in March, the world fell off a flat earth. So he's someone being able to say that, you know, and saying it like jokingly now, but at the time really feeling it. But at the same time, there are some people who are really, really on message. And I really found, I think, in June, when business started to kind of open back up and that fragmentation wasn't really happening as much, people were back on it. People were back on, like, I'm doing this launch with this influencer or I'm launching this brand and it's going in Sephora or going into Ulta. And that was the party line. And I think that one thing COVID and also Black Lives Matter has shown us is this, I think, people have are wanting to be a little bit more collaborative and a little bit more open and maybe more willing to share a little of their secrets. So I hope that's something that we see continue. I just read that glossy article about MERS. <laughs> and um, it's just so cool to come full circle and here you are talking about it. Yeah. Well, I was finishing that up like literally before we started recording, Jody. So <laughs> that's why it's on my mind. Well, maybe I was one of the first people to read it. That makes me feel special. You are. You're very special. So um, you just said to me that um, you don't really like going to events and like the networking and makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, and I want you to know that that's the reason why I started a podcast, because I hated going to like these dinner parties and I didn't want to hang out at bars and I didn't know how to infiltrate clicky groups. And I told my um, 
my coach at the time, I'm like, I just, I'm just not really good in big groups. I'm really great one-on-one. And then he called me the next day and said, you should start a podcast. That's such a, like, I think that's such a funny thought because I very much am similar. You know, I think I present as an extrovert, but I feel like I'm an introverted extrovert, you know? And I think like, I'd much rather have deep conversations one-on-one or in a small group or with people I know and love or respect than just, you know, go to a dinner for three hours. It's really hard. It's much harder than it looks on Instagram. (laughs) Right. And, um, this navigating small talk is really challenging for me. I, I'm, I have a hard time with surface conversations and they make me really uncomfortable. Just like you, like I'd really rather like go crazy deep. Um, and you can't do that with everybody. Obviously not everybody's prepared or, um, willing to be vulnerable that way. So, but one-on-one you can kind of like, I guess you can suss that out easier. Right. And I think there's something about when in those kind of small groups or dinner party situations or bars, there's something about like, you know, you want the other person to like you, you want them to respect you or think that you're cool, especially here in New York. And I end up feeling like I'm oversharing and just like telling someone my whole life story or like I just like got drenched in because I didn't have an umbrella or my skirt flew up on the subway or whatever, I'm probably doing that right now. And, you know, then the person looking at you was just like, what did you just say to me, (laughs) you know? And so it's just this weird balance I find that it's still tricky to do. I'm laughing. Even in your 30s, even in your 30s. (laughs) Priya, I'm laughing so hard right now because I feel like I'm the person, like, I'll tell you, like, when I have my period, you know, and you were talking about oversharing, (laughs) and I'll tell you my, like, pure period horror stories, Um, which I think is maybe uh, the reason that this oversharing may be why um, people perceive you as, like, super outgoing and myself as well. Um, I see it more as being vulnerable and real than um, being outgoing. But you just you just said something that I thought was really interesting. It does lead into one of the prepared questions that I gave you. Um, <laughs> this idea about um, like what what other people think. This um, notion of um, you know you and I both meet really smart people every day and, and engage with them. I have like dips in insecurity. Um, and self-confidence, they kind of come in waves. Usually it's tied to the bank account. How much money is in Base Beauty's bank account? If there's a lot, I feel really good. If all of a sudden there's less, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not good at this. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I force myself to be vulnerable and honest, because I think it um, makes the insecurities sort of vanish a little bit, if I'm real. Um, but I'm just curious as to how these moments of insecurity show up for you. Um, when you're talking to all these CEOs and executives and board members and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you say that because I feel deeply insecure. I mean, I, I think you and I have talked about this before, Jody, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, but it's like, I have always felt like the ultimate outsider. You know, I'm not even, I haven't even been in beauty that long. I mean, and I grew up in a small town in South Texas where I was like one of very few Indian children there. My family is one of very few Indian families. And being in Texas and being a minority is also a totally other thing. (laughs) But yeah, I always kind of felt a little bit like I had to prove myself much more than my peers. And of course, more than my white male peers or my white female peers. And so I think with um, CEOs and board members, and I think the ones that especially that I'm getting to know early on, I'm so overprepared, you know, like I really do read everything and, you know, whether it's earnings reports or that one line in WWD or the times or beauty matter or wherever, you know, 
I take really verbose notes and I kind of use that as my armor. So if I'm talking to Bob, like I just mentioned, or Mark Ray at Shishado, who I had never met before and was really, really nervous to meet when I met him, um, you know, I just use what I knew as, you know, as my backing. And I think what's surprising to people sometimes that I found this, I'm sure you hear this too, Jody, because I feel like you're outgoing and fun. And, you know, when we talk one-on-one, but people are surprised that you know a lot about this business and you're not asking questions like, so like, do you put the highlighter on before the blush or after the blush? Or if you're influencer, like, you know, what's your favorite mascara? Like you're asking tougher questions. And of course, like a lot of the private equity guys I talked to, like, you know, you, it's very easy to hear like party lines, whether it's from a CEO or from a founder or private equity. But when you start asking more detailed questions and we were like, well, what was that really about? It's kind of like that Axios thing with Trump the other day, you know, just asking a follow-up sometimes and an informed follow-up really puts people, you know, lets people respect you and also puts them on their toes. So that's one thing I think that I do have in my, um, I guess, like toolkit is that, and my husband says it too, is just like, I will ask questions over and over again in different ways. And he's like, I'm, you're not interviewing me. We're just having dinner, you know? And that's, I think, but that can be a skill for, you know, first time for someone who's trying to kind of carve out a space for themselves and build something when people didn't know them. Right. It's the follow-up questions where the juicy, meaty stuff is. I don't mean to juicy, meaty meaning is going to trip somebody, but um, it's like where the details are, right? Because you right. Um, you sent me an email this morning and you wrote y'all, Y apostrophe A-L-L. Is that how you spell it? Yes. Right? Yes. So like it leads me to, t- I want to talk about Texas. I want to talk about growing yeah. up in Texas. So, um, you know, it's because I think when people are speaking, um, hopefully you're more comfortable now than you were 10 minutes ago and you're, you know, being yourself and um, you're willing to reveal yourself to me and my listeners. And I'm so grateful for that because the more people, um, the more people, the more that people get to hear you and you be you, I feel like the future us can navigate the world with less insecurity. Like, I think my job is to help the people who are 10 years younger than me just be themselves at their job and not have to pretend to be cool or chic or rich or whatever it is that the games like I felt like I used to have to play. Um, when I started in the business, I really felt so insecure. And I thought if I wasn't like roommates and best friends with Jane Lauder growing up, I'm never going to make my dreams come true. And like, you're laughing, but it's like exactly tr- like really, I really believe this. This is like... As as if it was written in stone, I don't have these relationships with Jane Lauder, so therefore I can't. Um, and it took like a lot of years in therapy and coaching for me to see that like I can create my own path. I just never saw those other paths. Absolutely. I mean, you're like preaching to the choir. I mean, I definitely felt that way when I first moved to New York, when I first had a career in New York. And, you know, even as a kid growing up, you know, I always felt like I had to be, I, you know, backtrack. You know, my parents are professors. They immigrated here from in, from India. You know, my, all my brothers were born in India. I was the first person in my family to be born in Eugene, Oregon, when they were going to grad school. And then we moved to Laredo, Texas, which is literally on the border of Texas and Mexico when I was four. So talk about being an outsider and feeling like you have no connections. Like nobody in Laredo leaves Laredo. Nobody in Laredo, like if they do leave Laredo, they're just going to Dallas or San Antonio or Houston So to come all the way here to New York City and, you know, to be working in these industries, it's like, 
where did you come from? I'm not a trust fund kid. I'm not, I didn't go to Princeton. I didn't go to Penn. I didn't naturally, you know, have those things at my fingertips. Um, And I think that was really hard. And I think when I first started in publishing, you know, when I was 23, it was very much like the devil wears Prada, like, oh my God, you're one out of every million girls get this job. It's amazing that you got these jobs. And that's how I felt. I felt really grateful to be there. And that's a great feeling to have. And it's good to have that, but it also kind of undermines you and your own confidence because it says like, you don't deserve to be there. Right. You know, um, you mentioned when we're on our intake call, I think you called it a caste system, right? Like there was this order and like you only certain people were let into the order. And if you weren't let into the order, then forget about it. Go find a job somewhere else in insurance or something. Um, so, uh, I'm hopeful that this is getting erased. I'm hopeful that this like world of, um, um, like, fragile, and I say it with sarcasm, fragile people who need to be protected is going away. Like, why can't everybody just be an adult and carve their path and not have to come from a certain legacy to achieve a job? Right. And I think some of it, ultimately, I think a lot of it has been, you know, access, like access point, like so much of it is network and who you know, and also where you went to school, private school and college, and then also money. You know, like I told you, like at the beginning of this, like my parents were professors, like we were very middle class, you know, um, and still are. And I think that like the out, the idea, even back then for me thinking about doing something more creative was outrageous because you just had to be sure that you were going to have a stable life. And like, you know, what was more stable than being a doctor or a lawyer? Like no one was saying like, go like be in product development at Estee Lauder or, you know, L'Oreal or go start your own brand. So um, I want to talk about your career, and let's just put it out there. You worked in banking for a short amount of time. I did. It was a very short amount of time. I was a uh, finance and English major at the University of Texas in Austin, and English was added on as uh, kind of my more creative outlet. My mom's an English professor, but it took a long time to get there. Um, But I was really focused on finance, and I thought it was because, you know, I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I thought, well, you know, business is like the next best thing. And all these kids in my class were, you know, applying for investment banking internships. And so did I. And so the summer of 2004 was like the summer that I came to New York and was a Merrill Lynch investment banking analyst. And if I remember correctly, I was in the consumer retail group and it was wild. Like, you know, I I have to say it's all again, coming very full circle, but I was not great at it. You know, I think I was uh, intimidated for sure. And I was much better at like reading about, you know, things in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal or understanding things on paper than understanding things on practice. But it was that experience in New York that kind of showed me that there were other creative jobs in New York because I had a roommate who worked at an art gallery and she was from Bucknell and another uh, roommate who worked at W Magazine in fashion. And she was an, um, a fashion merchandising major. And so I was like, oh, wow, you don't have to follow this really linear path. And, you know, being a banker is the, is not the only way to be successful. (laughs) So first of all, that roommate mix is like, has the makings of a sitcom, right? right? Like, okay. Second of all, you said, and that you're better 
putting things to reading things in paper than putting them to process? What does that mean? So I guess I really understood um, reading about, and this is funny that I'm saying it this way. Like, I think I really understand when I read, read a newspaper article, what was happening in a story or what was happening in a business or reading like a balance sheet. But when I was actually talking to some of these like vice presidents at Merrill or other analysts, like I felt like I had no idea what practically this meant. It kind of was like, you know, and I took a million accounting classes and a million finance classes, but it was like, truly like, why do I need to learn calculus? I'm never going to apply this in real life. And that's how I kind of felt about some of those accounting classes and finance classes. And obviously my real life experience at Merrill Lynch, I just didn't totally get it. Didn't like work with one part of my brain. And also like, let's be honest, like I sure, I did make a ton of money that summer. And I did, I felt, I feel like I remember I bought it myself. Like my treats were like a Gucci purse, like the Jackie O Gucci purse, which is now making a comeback. And a like a Prada like leather pouch, which was very fancy, right? Because, you know, my roommates weren't buying that for themselves. But at the same time, I worked like in the middle of the night to like three o'clock in the morning and hated it. And then went out to like NYU bars like afterwards. I mean, it was just such a weird uh, burning the candle at both ends or however you say that kind of life. Right. So you um, you moved on. You told me that you got a roll at Gap which was like pretty cool back then, probably. Yeah, it was. You know, after I came back uh, my senior year, I decided I wanted to do something more creative and really looked at um, magazine jobs because I realized this was something that you could do. You could work at a magazine. But every Condé Nast and Hearst HR person said you have to be in New York to get a job. So my parents were totally thrilled about that idea. And I was also applying for more creative jobs at um, fashion companies. At the time, it was mostly fashion because I was like very, very into fashion, like read Vogue religiously and Harper's Bazaar. And I got a job at um, in Gap's retail merchandising program. So it was like this really it was called the RMP program. And you rotated between all the brands, um, Gap, Old Navy and Banana Republic at the time and merchandising uh, production. And I'm forgetting that planning is the last one. And at the end of it, I was a merchant in Old Navy Boys, Canada. So like I told you, Jody, I was like picking out like those Husky Boys pants that, you know, with the snaps on the side and like puffer jackets because, you know, they had to be seasonally appropriate for like seven year olds. Um, but it was a, I mean, it was the first time to really realize again, like that there were jobs out there that were so different than what you were exposed to kind of as a kid. Um, yeah, I, I love this. I, I want you to know that as um, a parent, that the buttons on the inside of little baby pants are like really important. They like help you size the waist and they help you grow the waist as a child grows. It's like a, a detail is probably really aggravating to sew in because it's like little tiny pants with like lots of buttons. But it's an amazing, amazing thing for parents. Um, I also okay. remember... Wait, I also remember there was also, was it were carpenter jeans like still important for boys? Because these snaps, these snap pants always had like a carpenter loop. Yeah, and my son who's now 13, he just had his 13th birthday yesterday. So 13 years ago, yes, he had those jeans. And now I'm wondering like, why do babies need to wear jeans? Is it really important that they're wearing jeans? <laughs> I think not at all. <laughs> um, he doesn't wear jeans now. All he wears is like... <laughs> sporty clothes, you know, like Under Armour clothes. That's all he wears. Um, okay, so um, fast forward, the, after the gap roll, you you worked at Condé Nast, right? So you made that dream happen. Um, and then like basically every single fashion magazine that existed, you've worked at. 
it seems like. Is that true? I mean, not every, um, but yes, I worked um, at W and Women's Wear Daily, um, the Wall Street Journal, um, Town and Country, Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair, and Style. It was a lot. It's um, a good and list. It was a good list. It was a really good list. And, you know, I think I, I think, I mean, obviously I started in publishing right before um, the 2008 recession. Um, I started in like late 2000, 2006. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a dream, a dream time to be in magazines pre that. And I think after that, what we realized is it's like, you really did. I specifically thought you had to jump around and move to move up and to make more money. You had to move from place to place. And I really did that in a way to an art form (laughs) for a while. And then I kind of realized, you know, then it became an issue of like, oh, well, you've jumped around a lot. Like, where's your loyalty? Where is your kind of like, um, your through line. And for me, I think it was always just like, I really like to be part of something new, one one piece of it. And at all of those places, especially later in my career when I was at Town and Country and Jay Fielden was the new editor in chief and they were trying to make it like zhuzhed up and like more modern, you know, that 1% have it have a more modern feel. Or when I was at Vanity Fair and started like the style site for them, those were like incubator projects within these heritage corporations. And that was really exciting to me. And so whenever I got those kind of opportunities, I really went for them. Um, But, you know, publishing has changed a lot from 2006 to, you know, 2016, which is when my last full-time job was at InStyle. And that was the summer of 2016. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about relevance because it's something that I did subconsciously, unconsciously. What's the right word? Not re- not realizing it until recently that um, I think I've watched people who own agencies sort of like um, not evolve and like the agency is the same now as it was 20 years ago in terms of its structure and its offerings. And I like watch, you know, they, they kind of seem like dinosaurs, you know, it's not um, a relevant style of business anymore. And I realized that like one of the things I've done over the past few years is like continually to evolve with the marketplace to maintain relevance. Um, and I think the podcast is a, another way to do that. And it sounds like you're you're doing that too through your career. You were like picking up skills and then bringing them to these new opportunities because these new opportunities are the future, right? So it could have been an incubator, an experiment, you know, a town and country or on any fair, but it was really the what was coming for everybody. Um, was that a conscious decision of yours? Um, and do you feel like it was rooted in relevance? Like, uh, essentially, what, I'm, what I realized this morning as I'm brushing teeth is, like, I'm building, rel- trying to continue building relevance just to maximize my earning potential. Like, that's the reason why, like, I work so hard. Yeah. You know, I don't think I knew it at the time. I think at the time it was just, like, pure ambition. Like, I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to be editor-in-chief of Vogue one day or Harper's Bazaar. And I thought that, like, this was the way to do it. And you know, showing that at a lot of expertise and showing it at a lot of different places and being able to like understand tone or understand stories and and at all these different places had to be valuable, right? But what then I soon realized is like, you know, by 2016, like people really, it was, it was a very like triangular place, if that makes sense. Like there were so few positions to get to, you know, whether it was executive editor or deputy editor or editor in chief. And that's still the case. I mean, there are one, again, like it takes a million girls to get that one editorial assistant job. It it could be argued the same thing um, to get an editor-in-chief job. And I think for me, when I went freelance that 
summer of 2016, it was really freeing because I wasn't necessarily beholden to fashion. It made me, it forced me to not have a name attached to myself, to be like, I work at Town & Country or I work at Harper's Bazaar to back up my validity. It was really hard, of course, because I was like pitching all the time and, you know, freelancing is such a grind. But it also like opened me up to things I would have never thought about. Like, you know, being able to write about beauty, being able to write about wellness, writing more business. Like I would have never thought to do that, even though I started at WWD, you know, was one of my first jobs. And I just, my career took me in a place that I just didn't expect, you know, I I never would have thought I would be doing this podcast like almost two years later. And sometimes what I, what I see now is that those older publications and those legacy companies that I worked for, there was a hierarchy and there was a structure that you had to follow. And maybe I wasn't going to be the person that was put on the Today Show or put on a podcast because I didn't look a certain way or because the industry wasn't ready for that kind of change at the time. I remember like, when social media first came out, like people weren't allowed to post on like Twitter. Like it, the handles were like in style, like name of person or Instagram, that kind of thing. It was like, you had to be, you were always representing the brand. It wasn't the idea of like you yourself could be a brand. Right. And so I think now what's amazing about glossy is I never thought this would become, of course, my Alexa is like going off right now and saying it's lunchtime, but, um, what I think now is that I don't think I ever, I think I had, didn't have that many expectations about Glossy. I didn't know where this was going to go. And I was really, really open to it. And now it's like, it's opened a whole new world that I didn't even, again, knew was reality. You know, that business, business reporting could be so important, that it could be so important to carve yourself out from consumer press right now. Digital would be so important. Like, events on on Zoom and podcasts and like being able to be like, these so-called like multitaskers, jackers of all trades that we always wanted, but like we weren't maybe allowed to be in publishing, you know, five or 10 years ago. Right. That was a okay. long, long question. <laughs> long, long um, answer. I love that, but I do want to know what is for lunch. What is for lunch? You know, I don't know yet. I don't <laughs> know. I've been really eating like this like mix of like cashews and dried cantaloupe, like basically all day. And that's like, my meal, but I will, I'll let you know after this, Jody. <laughs> I have my breakfast sitting next to me. I made like a really beautiful bowl of chia pudding with fruit and nuts, but I haven't had a chance to eat it yet. It's so oh, pretty. Looks so we should good. have had a lunch day. We should have had yes. a lunch <laughs> um, Okay. So we have so many questions and we have limited time because we keep these bite-sized just like you do on your glossy podcast. Okay. So I think I want to skip to what is your superpower? I think it is Well, I think it's twofold. I think it's uh, gathering information and then distilling that information. So I will kind of get as many facts as you can. And I don't necessarily know where the story is going to go, whether it's on a show or in a story or, you know, just in conversations like this. But when it gets there, it really does get there. I feel like I have a way to package and distill information with a different kind of eye, which um, I hope is helpful for people. (laughs) That's so cool. Okay, so um, my next question, this is a softball, I think. Okay. Um, okay. As a consumer, not as an editor or podcast host, but as a consumer, what category of beauty do you actually, like, pay for and love the most? Like, pay for yourself with your own money. So I think it's eye cream. 
So, I mean, skincare is always like an important thing, but I basically like burned off my face earlier this earlier in the pandemic from like perioral dermatitis from using way too much stuff. But eye cream is the one, besides Cetaphil, eye cream is the thing that I'm using every day. And I feel like that's the area that I hate about myself the most or I'm most insecure about on my face, like these dark under eye circles, which are like more swollen than ever. So a good eye cream without necessarily all that like crazy stuff like hydroquinone or like steroids that really just makes you look beautiful. Like looking fresh face is like the best thing ever. And you pay, you pay your own money. Like you'll go to, you'll order stuff and experiment with it, spend your own money yeah. on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my favorite is this brand 111 Skin. And I bought it last year before my wedding. And it my, my husband was like, why is this $190? And I was like, <laughs> you don't understand. So now I kind of try to save for it and like mix and match, but it's really expensive, but it works. So I just got a package um, of shower gel. So I, <laughs> I'm i really obsessed with the Golden Door. Do you know that um, spa resort in California? It's like, it's, okay. it's famous legacy. And um, I was there a few years ago um, as their guest and it was like the most amazing experience ever. And the shower gel just has this like ginger, like this incredible ginger scent. And I love it so much. And I've been buying them and I buy them like a few at a time because like, you know, I want to stock up. So I'm like a shower gel body scrub girl. Like that's where it's my happy place. And nobody ever talks about shower gel and body scrub. But um, so it came in the mail and my husband opened it and he's like, each one's $44. (laughs) It's a shower gel that's $44, but I like spend my own money on it. And I know that that's insane, but it makes me so happy. (laughs) It's $44. (laughs) No, totally. Totally. I mean, same thing with like shampoo. I mean, shampoo and conditioner is like my Mm -hmm. second favorite thing. And yeah, like you can't use that. You can't wash your hair like every single day. You'd, You'd use that whole bottle of $44 shampoo or shower gel in like a day. Yeah, I love it. But you know what? I was like, this is what makes me happy. Going out to dinner does not make me happy. This shower gel makes me happy. Especially not anymore. <laughs> okay, so th- this is what I need to know. Um, okay. So you have your own podcast that you're recording still during the pandemic. You just went yep. through our production process, and so you saw the behind the scenes. Um, how different is the behind the scenes, the mechanics of getting the show made for you? Um, it's similar. You know, obviously I was talking to Nico a second ago about a a certain setting on audio that we ask our guests to do, uh, for voice memos because we record during voice memos too in the Zoom era. Um, and it was something that I learned and obviously, um, our producer is on as well. Um, I think it's, you know, it's very similar. I, one thing I will say, this seems like, and maybe it's because we know each other, Jody. I feel like this is like, just like girlfriends hanging out a little bit. I feel like much more natural and much more like open and willing to talk. Whereas on the opposite side, from my perspective, I feel like I have to be so on when you're the host, which I imagine you probably feel right now. (laughs) I feel like I have to be on, but it's way much like the on is intensified when I, my guest is not as um, free and comfortable and and, and, um, just speaking candidly. Right. So when um, and I really want to represent like all the different types of people work in our business. So there are some people that are like you and are willing to have a conversation and it is very two way. But then I have guests that like answer the question and they don't there's no conversation. Right. So that to me is like the ultimate challenge, because um, I want I want to make our listeners smile, whether it's they learned something new or they related to something or they had an epiphany or an aha moment, whatever it is. Um, And I 
it's harder to draw information out of people. That makes my job harder, but I think it's an important task. So like, I felt like so proud of myself when I've gotten through hard interviews and they're not hard because the subject matter is hard. It's just hard to get people to talk. Right. Totally. Um, I think it's, it can be really exhausting. It can be really draining, especially when you're doing this on zoom, because it's like, you're not in person, you're not feeling their energy. You're not, you know, getting that, you know, those excitement from being in together in a room. And, and that's one thing I really miss about not doing this in person. I'm sure for you guys too, because that almost just felt like people could be a lot more comfortable. Um, you know, it makes me laugh that you were just saying that it's exhausting because I felt like, like, I'm not usually a diva, but I, there was like a year ago where I told my team, like, I can't do three of these a day. It's too exhausting. And I felt like such like an actress who's like, no, I can't read the lines anymore. You know, I'm not going to do another take. But like, I really want to listen to what you're saying. And that is a processing that is exhausting, like when you do it again and, and again and again, because I'm really totally. listening yeah, you have to really listen, you know, and it's funny that you say that because I'm doing the same thing to my producer, Pierre, who I literally drive crazy because we're like, we, we do our weekly show too. And we're doing a special series for the first time. It's a four part special series on skin whitening that's going to launch in September. And it's about, uh, it's more narrated. So I'm learning how to write a script and I'm like, interview. it's more than one person on the show. And it's like, I'm like, Pierre, no, we can't have like six of these a week. And he's like, Priya, we have to get this done. We actually have to finish this. <laughs> well, okay. So that takes us to the end of our time. And it was more than 30 minutes. It's 39 minutes together. But I know everybody will love this. And I hope that I made you at ease during this conversation because you're a lovely guest. Oh, Jody, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're so, I'm like, I, I love doing this with you. And I feel like if it was anybody else, I'd probably be even more nervous. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your wisdom. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Priya. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast.